Russia, 1959. Fifty miles outside of civilization, the Ural Mountains are covered in deep white snow with a single pop of color, a sign of human life. It's a tent. Its sides ripple in the bitter cold. Inside are nine people, hikers, friends, all on the adventure of a lifetime. But before the night is over, all of them will be dead. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. And today, I have a very special guest with me. Say hi to Sarah Turney. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I host Disappearances. Oh, it is so good to have you here. Uh, For those who don't know, Disappearances is a fantastic show. And Sarah is also an activist and organizer who works to raise awareness for missing persons cases and support those who are still searching for their loved ones. So it is a real treat to have her here today. Oh, wow, Carter. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here today on Cold Cases. When I heard you all were doing an episode on the Dyatlov Pass to set the record straight, I knew I had to be involved. Yes. This is a case about a group of students who go missing while hiking in the Ural Mountains in Russia. But no one can figure out what happened to them. And all the clues investigators find seem to make everything even more confusing. But there is a solution, and it's more than a true crime obsession or a petri dish for conspiracy theories. It's a case that needs closure. I was just so relieved that it seemed like there was finally a solid answer about what happened here. And I love that the reason we have an answer is largely thanks to one of my favorite movies, Frozen. You heard right, the movie Frozen plays a part in this mystery. And we'll get into that and everything else right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Okay, Sarah, ready to dive in? I'm ready. Okay, why don't you uh, set it up for us? Okay, 
Let's start with the guy who this whole case is named after, Igor Dyatlov. He was the leader of the now famous doomed excursion. Right, but 64 years ago, as the expedition is just getting underway, he obviously doesn't know it's doomed. No, he's just a 23-year-old thrill-seeking college student who loves the outdoors and wants to hang out with friends. But he also wants to get his grade three hiking certification, which is the highest available at the time. So he plans an elaborate hike into the Ural Mountains, assembles a crew of current and former students, and gets his college to sponsor it. Igor's done multi-day cross-country trips through rough terrain and nasty weather before, but this will be the hardest by a long shot. To get his certification, he and his friends will need to cover nearly 200 miles over a minimum of 16 days. There are 10 people going in total. They're mostly students in their early 20s. At least three are engineering grads with a few athletes mixed in. All of them are physically fit, capable of the excursion, and like Igor, aiming to get their grade three certificate. There is one outlier of the group named Sasha. He's not a student or a recent grad. He's a tatted up 37-year-old World War II veteran who occasionally uses a fake name. It seems like he got in touch with the group because he's a tourism instructor and also wants his grade three certification. The others think that he's a little suspect at first, but he's apparently a really nice guy and wins them all over. The trip kicks off on January 23rd. Everyone boards a train for a long two-day journey to a small town called Ivdel. They're lugging heavy bags, equipment, and cross-country skis, but they're in a great mood. And from Ivdel, they take a bus to Vizhay, a tiny village in the middle of nowhere, which will be their last taste of civilization for a while. Now, for those that don't know, the reason we know so much about the Dyatlov hikers is because they bring items to document their trip, specifically cameras and journals. One of the students, Luda, writes an entry on January 25th while they're in Vizhay. By the way, she's the youngest of the group, but maybe the toughest. A hunter once shot her by accident, and she had to travel 50 miles back to civilization with a bullet in her leg. Wow, that is as tough as they get. She writes in the journal about how they're spending their last easy night. They watch a movie, sing songs, and dance. It honestly sounds really nice. Yeah, it sounds like they're having a great time, and it's good that they can relax, because the next day is when the real trek starts. Their first destination was a mountain called Mount O'Torton. I've seen photos, and it's stunning, but it's a dangerous hike and isolated. To even get to the base, the group has to travel by foot, skis, or if they're lucky, by hitching rides on any sleds or trucks they run into. And once they're on the mountain itself, the weather is what most people call uninhabitable. The ground is covered in a thick layer of old, hardened snow. Temperatures can reach minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's big and it's treacherous. And its name, O'Torton, is literally telling them to stay away. Plenty of sources claim it means don't go there in the language of the indigenous Monzi people. It doesn't stop the students. As they head towards the mountain, they seem to be enjoying themselves. In photos, you can actually see icicles hanging off Igor's beard, and yet he's smiling. 
And now cut to day five, and they're about 50 miles away from Mount O'Torton. From here on out, it's a grueling uphill battle. They hike and ski and even hitch rides with loggers for as long as they can, but it's slow going. They're barely moving a mile an hour on foot. At one point, they stumble on a rundown building in the woods that turns out to be an old abandoned gulag, as in prison camp. Yeah, the whole thing is super creepy, but it beats sleeping in a tent, so they decide to spend the night. Based on their journals and photos, nothing major goes wrong. But the next morning, one student, Yuri Yudin, decides it's time to cut his losses. His back pain has been flaring up, and he makes the call to head back to civilization where he will arrive safely. Meanwhile, everyone else plunges ahead in great spirits. Until day nine, January 31st. That's when a storm rolls in. Wind batters the mountain and covers everything with fresh snow. Well, not to state the obvious, but getting pummeled by a storm in such an isolated, frigid place is bad news. Experts say that when temperatures drop to minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, that kind of weather can cause frostbite and hypothermia in 10 minutes or less. But the next morning, the group braves the cold anyway. That's probably their first mistake. They're in the Ural Mountains. It's rugged, rough terrain with lots of peaks and valleys. And it's not like the trails are clearly marked. With such harsh winds and low visibility, the group probably strays off course. Instead of continuing on towards Mount O'Torton, they end up climbing a completely different peak, Kolatsiakul. And remember how Mount O'Torton supposedly means don't go there in Monzi? Well, according to the New Yorker, Kolatsiakul translates to Mountain of the Dead. I don't like that. That's where the hikers pitch camp on February 1st, 1959. They light a contained fire in the tent to stay warm. Now, despite the bad day, the group eats pork fat, the kind of high calorie food they need to keep their energy up. They sing folk songs, tell jokes, and eventually drift off to sleep. It's similar to how they've been spending some of their nights so far. Yeah, but the big difference is it's the last time anyone from the group takes photos or writes in the journal. The hikers are due to send word of their safe return in 11 days. But when family and friends don't hear from them, nobody's that surprised. It's pretty common for a trip like this to run long. But by the 20th, eight days after they were supposed to arrive, there's still no word from them. And they start to really panic. So they alert the authorities and a whirlwind of search efforts begin. Helicopters drop rescue teams, student volunteers show up, then the police, then the Soviet military, even the local Monzi volunteer to help. It is a lot of manpower, but it still feels a little hopeless. It just snowed. Tracks are hard to find, the glare off the snow is blinding, and obviously no one knows how far the hikers got on their journey or even that they got lost. But after five days of searching, a miracle happens. Someone spots a pop of color sticking out of the snow. It's the tent. At least it used to be. The tarp is mostly off and a pole that used to hold it up is just sticking straight out of the snow. And there's no sign of the hikers anywhere. So things aren't looking good. And it gets worse when officials make it to the campsite and unzip the tent, they find backpacks, coats, and shoes. 
basically everything the group needs to survive. It's definitely strange that they would leave them, but what's even stranger, there's a slash through one of the tent walls, like someone cut through it with a knife from the inside. Stranger still, outside the tent, there are eight, maybe nine sets of footprints visible in the snow. They all travel away from camp for about 30 to 60 feet, converge into a single file line, and then disappear. I'm Darnell Ishmael, guest host of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, the special four-part miniseries from Solved Murders. I am honored to take you on a journey deep into the Old West to meet one of the greatest true crime heroes you may have never known existed, Bass Reeves. No Master But Duty reveals the true story of a formerly enslaved man who went on to become one of the most legendary U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West, bringing justice to over 3,000 criminals. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves' No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Okay, so you're on the search team trying to find the hikers. You come across their camp and it looks like, for some reason, they cut their way out of their tent, left most of their belongings behind, and then fled down the mountain wearing not much more than their socks. Sarah, what do you think happened to them at this point? Do you think they're still alive? Ugh, it's so hard to say. I mean, all I can think of is that something major must have happened to make them leave the warmth of their tent. And maybe, being from Arizona, my ignorance to the cold is showing here, but them walking in a single-file line makes me wonder if they were instructed to do that. Yeah, the whole thing feels foreboding. And the night they find the tent, they open a bottle of booze and raise their glasses. One guy says, best not to toast to their health, but to their eternal peace. That is so haunting. Right? Because the very next morning, the first hikers are found. About a mile away from the tent, searchers find a cedar tree with branches missing at the bottom, like someone tried to climb it and snap them off. On the ground nearby are burnt branches stacked into a pyramid, most likely the remains of a fire. Beside the fire are two bodies. Both are men named Yuri, and we'll call them Yuri K and Yuri D. They have the same name, but couldn't have been more different. Yuri D was an econ major who once went toe-to-toe -to -toe with a bear and won. Yuri K was a musician and a bit of a joker, one of the three engineering grads on the trip. But now both these men are dead, frozen solid with barely any clothes on. And then about a thousand feet away from them is Igor. He's also barely dressed and lying face up in the snow. The way he's positioned, it looks like he was heading back to the tent when he just collapsed. A few hundred feet from Igor is Zena, 
a radio engineering student. Her body is frozen in a fetal position. No jacket, no shoes, no gloves. It is so strange. Well, the search goes on for another week or so before they find Rustem, a long-distance runner. He's slightly more dressed than the others, but unlike the first four, he has an obvious injury. The side of his skull is fractured. Oh, I mean, it changes everything and raises a lot of questions. Why would they cut a hole in their tent and flee camp? Were they attacked in the middle of the night? Could it have been an animal? A person? A monster? This is kind of when the conspiracy theories start. And it also doesn't help that when the five bodies are flown off the mountain and taken for an autopsy, KGB agents show up outside the coroner's building. I don't like this, and it's not the only time the KGB inserts themselves into the case. They later show up at the hikers' funerals, which to anyone I think is a little suspicious. I mean, the KGB doesn't have the best track record when it comes to transparency and ethics. To say the least... So it's easy to wonder, if this were some ordinary hiking accident, why is the Soviet CIA keeping such close tabs on it? Yeah, and the autopsy results only add to the suspicions. The medical examiner finds cuts, bruises, and burns on all five bodies. And he notices that one of the hikers, Yuri K, has a chunk of flesh missing from his right hand, which they would later find inside his mouth as in he probably chewed it off. But officially, when it comes out, the report says they all died from hypothermia, and that's including Rustem, the one found with a fracture in his skull. For a lot of people, me included, hypothermia doesn't make sense. I don't know why the KGB is getting involved or to what extent, but someone somewhere in the government must think that there's something going on here. Because privately? the Soviet military police launched a homicide investigation, apparently without the KGB trying to stop them. Thank goodness. It's led by a guy named Lev Ivanov. Remember that name. It's important. Okay, so Lev is probably the busiest person in this whole story. He basically oversees all search efforts to recover the remaining hikers and interviews their family and friends, different people who saw the group at their various stops along the way. And at some point, he talks to the Monzi, who know the area better than anyone. And a few of them share the same wild story. Apparently, right around the same time the hikers died, a number of Monzi people saw mysterious lights appear in the sky over the mountains, which suggests that maybe... They ran into aliens. I mean, unidentified flying objects. <laughs> Who knows where they came from? True. And listen, I totally get that this sounds unbelievable, but stay with us here. There's a reason this theory catches on. Investigators actually find evidence that could support what the Monzi saw that night. Some sources say Lev, the prosecutor in charge of the whole operation, noticed a bunch of the trees in the area looked mysteriously burnt or singed at the top. I feel like I'm going to keep saying this, but I don't like this. <laughs> totally. It is so strange. But then there's also the last photo the hikers ever took. It looks like a big glowing orb hanging in the night sky. I mean, I'm looking at the picture right here, and it's, it's really hard to say that it's anything at all. 
I see nothing in this photo. Honestly, when I first saw it, I thought I might be looking at an ultrasound. <laughs> yeah, it does not necessarily scream alien. And investigators also discount to glowing orbs, for the most part. Instead, they propose an entirely different theory. That the Monzi killed the Dyatlov hikers for trespassing on so-called sacred land. I really don't like that. It feels a lot like scapegoating. There's no evidence to suggest that that's true. The Monzi people have been extremely helpful in the investigation. And as far as I know, are still out searching for the missing hikers. And it's even worse, because Kolatsiakal isn't actually sacred ground for the Monzi. And even if it was, it still wouldn't make sense. Any attackers would have needed to be in the trees or flying, because investigators only found tracks belonging to the hikers. Still, investigators do spend time on that theory, at least until they're forced to look elsewhere. And that's when some people start to wonder... If the Monzi weren't responsible, did the hikers possibly kill each other? Now, I don't totally see the evidence for that one either. I mean, I could see maybe two of them getting into a fight, maybe a few of them, but not all of them breaking out into a massive fight and killing each other. Yeah, that seems pretty crazy, but it does seem possible that some maybe got in a fight. I mean, the radio engineering student Xena had once dated Yuri D, the bear guy. And supposedly now Igor had a crush on her, so some people think maybe a fight broke out between the two men, or that one of the hikers went on an impromptu killing spree. Well, maybe Sasha, the older military vet who didn't have a close connection with anyone. Listen, I get it. It just seems like grasping at straws, especially because there's not much to go on. Four of the hikers are still missing, and rescue teams have had zero luck finding them, at least until the snow starts to melt. Yes, in May of 1959, about three months after the hikers left, a Monzi man who's out hunting with his dog notices some torn clothing in the snow. They lead him to what looks like a man-made den. It's a deep hole carved into the snow with a bed of branches along the bottom. He's aware of the missing hikers, so he calls in authorities. Officials arrive, armed with avalanche probes, which are long metal rods. Rescue teams use them to comb through snow for debris or people. One searcher sticks his probe in, and when he brings it back up, there's human flesh stuck to the end. Excavation efforts begin immediately. They dig through at least 10 feet of compact snow before hitting the bottom. That's when they realize the den was built near a rocky stream, and right there, in and around the ravine, they find the last four hikers' bodies. Alexander, Nikolai, Sasha, and Luda, all underdressed and starting to thaw. Alexander, a nuclear engineering student, has a wound behind his right ear, and the medical examiner says his neck is deformed. Nikolai, who was known as the more serious of the group, has suffered a so-called mysterious and devastating blow to the side of his head. It's a fatal injury, and something the coroner says can't be explained by a fall or a fight. It's more in line with what might happen in a high-speed car crash. Meanwhile, Sasha, the older vet, has fractured ribs and internal hemorrhaging, and the medical examiner thinks he sustained all the injuries while he was still alive. And then Luda, the woman who survived a hunting accident, she also has broken ribs, one of which punctured her heart. 
and she's missing her tongue and both her eyes. It's just horrific. It's unbelievable. It is so weird. There is nothing that comes to mind about what could have possibly caused all these different injuries. And it really makes you understand why so many conspiracy theories have cropped up over the years. After the news reaches the public, there are countless rumors swirling around the Soviet Union. Is it mass murder? Aliens? Yetis? And we haven't even gotten to the radioactive clothing. Okay, so rumors are swirling. At this point, everyone has a different theory about what happened to the hikers. But what theory are you chasing? I don't know. I feel like I could argue so many different theories at this point. Hypothermia, paradoxical undressing, some type of animal, government testing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think personally, I'm going to go with our friend Lev because he lasers in on the theory that those lights in the sky weren't aliens, but some type of rocket or missile. Now, the idea is the Soviet military might have been testing out some weapons, not expecting anyone to be around. If the weapons themselves didn't kill the hikers, well, maybe they saw something they weren't supposed to and paid the ultimate price. So to test the theory, Lev sends in some of the hikers' clothing for radioactive testing. And two sets come back positive, Alexander's and Luda's. They were in the group of hikers most recently found. Alexander had wounds on his neck and Luda's eyes were missing. The radiation on their clothing wouldn't have caused their deaths, but the levels are believed to be beyond what anyone would call safe. Now, you'd think investigators would want some answers as to how and what caused it, but that's not what happens. No. Almost immediately after making that discovery on May 28th, 1959, Lev Ivanov closes the investigation entirely. After all this time spent on the case, he has this to say. The hikers apparently died from a, quote, unknown compelling force. An unknown compelling force? That means nothing to me. <laughs> means nothing to me either. It makes no sense. But that's the official explanation. And it shuts the case down. Lev and his team basically just give up. Then, right after this, Lev Ivanov, who I think we can all agree was suspicious of the Soviet military, gets transferred from his post. He's moved to a tiny town over in Kazakhstan, and he doesn't speak publicly about the incident for decades, more than 30 years. By the time Lev agrees to an interview, it's 1990, and I'm sitting in diapers somewhere in Phoenix. Lev tells the reporter it wasn't his choice to close the investigation. His superiors ordered him to classify his findings and forget the incident ever happened. I mean, that is not exactly the type of thing you just forget. The rest of the world certainly hasn't forgotten. Uh -uh. The Russian public haven't, the hikers' families, the tabloids. The story has traveled around the globe and back. But the truth still feels hidden beneath one unanswered question. What did the Soviet Union have to hide? Well, we'd probably never know, except a year after Lev's interview, the Soviet Union collapses and gives way to the Russian Federation. And for the first time in a while, high-ranking officials actually talk about the case. President Boris Yeltsin says he thinks there's something strange about it. But nothing actually happens for another 28 years. Then, in 2019, the Russian government announces that they're reopening the case. But there's a catch. They say they're only considering explanations that have to do with the weather, 
no weapons testing, no foul play. Whoa, that seems very limited and definitely doesn't help with the conspiracies. No, and when they release the results of the investigation, it concludes that the hikers fled camp because of an avalanche. Some died from their injuries, the rest from hypothermia. It's basically the same thing the government said all those years ago with the addition of a natural disaster. And so there's still a lot of people that don't really buy it. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. To be fair, the science doesn't seem to support the explanation. In order for an avalanche to trigger, the mountain needs to be a certain gradient. As far as anyone knows, the tense location on Kolatsiakul isn't steep enough. It's only 15 degrees, and there have been no reported cases in the area before. And when people die in avalanches, it's usually from suffocation which wouldn't account for the hikers' injuries, their missing body parts, the mysterious lights in the sky, or the radiation. Not to mention, an avalanche probably would have covered the footprints and knocked down the poles that were sticking out of the ground by the tent. Right. I mean, if there was an avalanche, they would have seen the avalanche at the time. But in 2021, two Swiss scientists put this new avalanche theory to test. Their names are Alexander Puzrin and Joan Gome. Alexander's an engineer, and Joan's a professor and researcher who specializes in avalanches. Right away, they make a big discovery. Turns out the mountain isn't actually a 15-degree slope. It only looks that way because it's almost always covered in snow. In reality, it's closer to a 30-degree angle, all the more ideal for an avalanche. So that's one question answered. But there are more questions, though, a lot of them, like the tent poles, footprints, or the extreme nature of the injuries. So Alexander and Joan decide to run some tests. But first, uh, they need the most advanced snow simulation software they can get their hands on, and it comes from an unlikely place. And I really love this. We mentioned it earlier. Yeah, that's right. This is the part where the Disney movie Frozen helps out. Apparently, the animation they used for the snow in that movie was so good, Joan only needed to modify it slightly. Along with that tech, he used historical records and environmental data to recreate the night where it all happened. And he figured out a theory, one that could literally answer everything. Okay, ready? This is the moment we've been waiting for. Let's do it, Carter. Okay, great. It's February, 1959. The hikers are lost and caught in a storm on a mountain they believe isn't very steep. So before they pitch their tent for the night, they dig into the side of the mountain to flatten the ground and insulate themselves from the winds. At some point, they light a fire and go to bed. That night, heavy winds shake a section of hardened snow loose. It then slides off the mountain and onto one side of the tent, and anyone sleeping on that side. The slab of snow isn't very large, only about 16 feet across, but it's very heavy, enough to cause car wreck level injuries. The hikers wake up, terrified. They think it's the beginning of a much larger, more dangerous avalanche. So their number one goal is to get everyone out as fast as possible. But something goes wrong. Maybe the zipper gets stuck or it takes too long. So someone cuts their way out. They run into the night as far away as they can, abandoning most of their stuff because they don't plan to be gone very long, just until the danger passes. And once the adrenaline and shock wears off, they realize there's a new problem. 
A few members of the group are badly injured. They try to help as much as they can, so they burrow that den to keep the four most injured people warm. They make a couple fires, and then one by one, they watch their friends die. They do this knowing that they themselves are slowly freezing to death. At some point, those who are still alive decide it's worth it to try and make it back to camp, but they collapse and die before they get there. It makes a lot of sense, and obviously there's the missing body parts like Luda's missing tongue and eyes, but her body was exposed in the wilderness for three months. The Ural Mountains are home to reindeer, wolverines, and lynx. As gruesome as it sounds, animals could have eaten them, and the stream the bodies were found in could have contributed to the decomposition. That's totally right. It could have all happened after the accident. And you might also be wondering, if the answer was an avalanche all along, why did it take decades for the theory to catch on? Well, maybe because what hit the hikers was most likely a very specific rare kind of avalanche called a snow slab, something no one knew enough about to consider back then. Right. And then there are the lights in the sky. The photo is the easiest to debunk. It was probably a lens flare or some technical malfunction. And yes, the Monzi people reported seeing mysterious floating lights, but that could have been a comet or a plane or anything, really. Even a military rocket. Yeah. And even if they were testing weapons, it probably didn't have anything to do with their deaths. The injuries weren't consistent with explosions, and there was no debris that would indicate a missile, bomb, or anything of the sort. That leaves us with one final thread. The radiation found on their clothing. Right, and that is mysterious. But there are a few different possibilities here. Apparently, the camping lanterns the group used contain small amounts of a radioactive element called thorium. It's hard to say if this could cause such high levels of radiation, but it's possible. Though it wouldn't explain why radiation was only found on two hikers, Alexander and Luda. To make sense of that, we need to go beyond the expedition. One of the students, Alexander, once worked at a secret institute in Moscow. He studied nuclear engineering, so the fact that his clothes were contaminated isn't that surprising. As for Luda, she was wearing a radioactive sweater, but it wasn't hers. It belonged to Yuri K, not her ex-boyfriend, the other Yuri. She must have grabbed it and put it on after he died. And like Alexander, Yuri also worked as a nuclear engineer, specifically at a nuclear complex located on the eastern slopes of the Ural Mountains. And here's where this story comes full circle. There's a detail that ties everything together and is missing from a lot of the reporting on this case. The BBC doesn't mention it, neither does the Smithsonian but it explains what exactly the Soviet government wanted to cover up. Yeah, in 1957, two years before the Dyatlov expedition, the nuclear power plant that Yuri worked at was being used to process plutonium for weapons. The fact that the plan existed was a total secret, both inside and outside the Soviet Union. But proper protocol either didn't exist or wasn't being followed because they apparently buried a bunch of nuclear waste that wasn't being maintained. And in September of that year, the whole thing exploded. 9,000 square miles of land were contaminated with radiation. 10,000 people had to be evacuated. Hundreds were killed, and that's probably a low estimate. 
Locals went on to develop radiation-induced cancers. Children were born with birth defects. Yuri K., the one whose sweater Luda borrowed, was one of several employees tasked with cleaning everything up. Even today, decades later, people are still suffering from health problems and dealing with the fallout of this moment in time. It was the biggest nuclear disaster the world had ever seen. Today, it's third, only behind Chernobyl and Fukushima. But there's a reason you probably never heard of it. Yeah. Remember, this accident happened while the Soviet Union was still in power. They were notoriously tight-lipped about anything that might make them look bad. So authorities worked hard to make sure the story didn't get out. Of course, with such a huge explosion, well, there's only so much they could do. It eventually made it into a few international reports. The CIA caught wind of it. But for the most part, the news didn't travel far. By some accounts, the US government helped keep a lid on the story because they didn't want Americans to have reservations about their own nuclear programs. The Soviet government didn't even publicly acknowledge the disaster until 1989, more than 30 years after the fact. Which meant that at the time of the Dyatlov Pass incident, the government still had a vested interest in keeping it a secret. Think about it. Nine hikers die in the woods under mysterious circumstances. One has a clear connection to what was, at the time, the biggest nuclear disaster the world had ever seen. If too much information got out, the jig would be up. So as soon as the word radiation entered the picture, they shut the investigation down. When you look at it like that, everything starts to make sense, don't you think? Completely. It actually answers all the questions that I thought were unanswerable. I think it's a pretty sound theory. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. Of course, after decades of wild speculation, not everyone agrees with this latest theory. Even Joan, one of the guys who figured out the avalanche theory, says it's too normal. <sighs> That's not something I feel. I mean, I feel like the very fact that it is something quote-unquote normal, this natural disaster makes it all the more compelling because it really brings it back to these nine people in this tragic scenario out in the woods facing something they didn't expect. I think that's where the heart of the story lies for me. Yeah, and sometimes the most simple explanation is the correct explanation. And I think we just have to accept that sometimes. Yeah, completely. And we have this natural desire to want to project uh, mystery onto things or intrigue when sometimes it's not there. I mean, for example... Even the names of the mountains, Mount O'Torton in Monzi translates to mountain with swirling winds, not in fact, don't go there. So too, the Kolat Siakal mountain can be translated as dead mountain or mountain of the dead, but it also can be read as silent peak. So sort of another example of we're trying to make more of it than it might actually be. Yeah, I feel like people have a hard time letting go of the mystery of it all. It's almost like a letdown for them at the end of some fictional movie, but these were real people. That's right. It's almost like after so many decades, you don't want it to end. But the fact is, this gives those families closure to know what actually happened. Oh, a thousand percent. And I mean, type Dyatlov Pass into Reddit and you'll see what we mean. Over time, the story has become a piece of folklore full of misinformation, a legend the whole world shares. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think the truth is interesting enough. It doesn't need to be buried under our beliefs or expectations. Right, because the truth is, nine people lost their lives in 1959. These were vibrant, intelligent young adults who spent their final days laughing and singing and occasionally arguing with each other. 
They talked about the future, about love. And when death knocked on their door, their footprints showed. They came together and traveled down the mountain as a team, not leaving anyone behind. There's nothing wrong with normalizing that. And I think that is a great note to end on. Sarah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, we appreciate you. New episodes of this show, Cold Cases, release every Monday. And you can listen to new episodes of Sarah's show, Disappearances, every Thursday. For more information on the Dyatlov Pass incident, we found Douglas Preston's New Yorker article, Has an Old Soviet Mystery at Last Been Solved?, Lucy Ash's reporting for the BBC, and Liam Legue's documentary film, An Unknown Compelling Force, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases, Disappearances, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast, with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones and Ali Wicker are our supervising editors, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Karis Allen, edited by Natalie Pertzotsky, Connor Sampson, and Kate Murdoch, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Mickey Taylor with sound design by Alex Button and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Sarah Turney. Thanks for listening. I'm Darnell Ishmael. This February on Solved Murders, join me for a four-part miniseries on the incredible life and career of Bass Reeves, one of the preeminent U.S. Deputy Marshals in the American West. In Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty, discover how a man born into slavery took freedom by force and brought over 3,000 criminals to justice, including his own son. Follow Solved Murders and catch all four episodes of Bass Reeves, No Master But Duty. Listen for free, only on Spotify.